Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. I'm super excited um, to preach this morning. My name is Marta, if you don't know. This is my last of four Sundays, which is not why I'm excited, but kind of, because uh, you guys know me well, that this is not my normal gig. This is Dan and Garrett's normal gig, and Dan will be back and um, next week to talk about the New Testament. But we have been in the Old Testament, and we have been talking about God creating this home for us. This world is his home, and he invites us in um, via divine hospitality and divine generosity. And today we're going to talk about divine wisdom. Um, the question at hand is, what is wisdom? And how do we get it? I've asked a lot of people this week what that means and what they thought that meant. And I've studied a lot. And I'm going to tell you, this sermon gave me fits this week. Because I could go to some really short verses and tell you exactly what to do with your life. But that's, that really doesn't make a sermon, me telling you what to do. And then I could go really, really long, which I did, and then they're like, yeah, Marty, you can't preach for two hours. So I had to cut it. So this is um, an overview of wisdom, and hopefully the Lord will speak to us. The people of God have, have not been the only people in the uh, history of the world to seek out wisdom. There are a lot of sacred wisdom texts that are not Christian. Um, we, have, we have the Bible. We have the Old and the New Testament. Um, but we swim in a water of culture that tells us what we think wisdom is. And it's not necessarily the same that God tells us. So as you're thinking about wisdom, think about people that you think, oh, that person's wise. A lot of times we, um, and we uh, attribute it to young people who have got their stuff together and like, oh, that's a kind of a wise kid there. Or maybe someone older who has a lot of experience. Sometimes it's someone who's got their stuff together in terms of money. We think that person is wise. Or we might think an innovative person is wise. Um, but none of this is divine wisdom. It might be smart, and it might be um, getting us through life, but it's not divine. There's a Hebrew phrase called chokmah. I think we have it on the screen. It's actually spelled chokmah, but it's called chokmah. Can you guys say that? Chokmah. So whenever we think about divine wisdom, the Hebrew phrase is called chokmah. It's an attribute of God. It's just not what he does or how he thinks. It's part of who he is. He is wise. It's an identifying character quality of God. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is kind. Yes, he's a good, good father and a good provider. And he wants all these good things for us. But he also is this wise God and father to us. And interestingly, in my studies that I told you gave me fits to speak, um, it is a part of God, the identifying part of God that the Hebrew people or the people of God thought was the part that helped him create the world. And so as we talk about God being, this being our home and God being our father, the part of God that is the chokmah or the wise part, he thought it was wise to create this world, which sometimes we question. That's okay. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
So it kind of fits in this um, theme of homecoming or God creating home or us co-creating God, co-creating with God. But it doesn't necessarily tell you what to do. And so I'm going to kind of give you an overview of some of the main bits of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Because these books in the Old Testament are not necessarily the continuing of the meta-narrative of the people of God, with God, and then the story, which we've talked about. We um, are created for God and by God, and then we tend to stray, and then he rescues us. That's the main plot story of almost every story in the Bible, but it is also the plot story of our lives, right? And... The wisdom literature kind of takes a divergent thing from that. It doesn't really talk about those kinds of things. They're kind of stuck in the Old Testament um, to give us some thoughts and something to think about, not necessarily something to do. But I do think it will help us. The three main books I'm going to talk about are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And I'm just going to give an overview. I'll include some scripture, but we're not going to go super deep. But I wanted you to see the pattern of this wisdom literature. Um, the book of Ruth, Psalms, um, Song of Solomon, those are also considered to be put in there in the Old Testament as part of the wisdom literature series. But these three are the main, they're the main characters of wisdom, okay? And we're going to kind of look at them as characters. We're going to look at them and we're going to kind of personify them. So the first book we're going to talk about is Proverbs. You guys are familiar with Proverbs. You probably have heard them. If you're in my house, I use them a lot when I was raising my children. They can finish the proverb I'm about to say. We shouldn't use the Bible as a tool, but I have. You guys have to, your parents. Um, so Proverbs is personified as female, and a lot of times wisdom is personified as female, but usually as a young, brilliant teacher. So think about a young, brilliant, perhaps motherly teacher. And um, most Christian women, if you've been around long enough, you've heard the chapter from Proverbs, Proverbs, the Proverbs 31 woman right? It just tells you what you should be if you're a Christian woman and gives you all these attribute, attributes. So you guys can read that later. I'm not um, real good at being a Proverbs 31 woman, so um, we're going to diverge from that too. Um, so let's look at, um, so I told you I was asking some friends this week. I asked a lot of people, what do you think why wisdom is and where do you find it? And everyone thought, and it took a while for people to answer, and they said, you know, it's usually someone who doesn't think that they're wise. It's usually someone that you're talking to and you ask them for something, and they don't necessarily think they're wise. And, and that's, a, that's a good little tidbit to keep on to, but it, that's actually in Proverbs. In Proverbs 26, 12, it says, do you see persons wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for fools than for them. So all you smarties out there who think you're super wise or all you who have a ton of experience, you might not be. Wisdom might come in a form that you don't even know. Um, and also, wisdom obviously is simply more than knowing that you're right. Being right, which we all like to be, is not wisdom. But Proverbs will slice up bits of wisdom and slice up bits of rightness 
and it will serve it to you on a plate, just like a good mother. Um, I have a couple of fa favorites that I wanted to share with you. Um, first one is called is from Proverbs. You guys can look these up. It's it's one I've used with my family and friends, um, and staff. Staff will recognize some of these. The first one is like a dog returns to his vomit, so does a fool reverts to his folly. We all we've heard that one probably. The pattern of your behavior. You don't take notice of it. It's like a dog, which is kind of gross, but yeah. This one, this one's a good one. Pride, it comes before, anyone know this one? A fall or destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. My kids can re repeat that one. I should probably have paid more attention to that one because here I am talking. Um, this one is the one that... <laughs> Garrett, if Garrett's listening to this, he'll know that I've used this one quite a bit because we have a young staff and we've, we like to joke. So this one, ready? Like a maniac who shoots deadly firebrands and arrows. So says the one who deceives a neighbor and says, I was only joking. So there's a lot of joking around the office. And so I used to, I like just to start it by saying, oh, like a, Maniac who shoots firebrands, and they all say, okay, here comes mom. Proverbs serves us a formula of logical and sensical instructions. I mean, if we follow them, we'll do well in life, right? It makes sense. There's, it's great. If you are um, needing instruction or direction and you read a proverb a day, you cannot go wrong. It will help you. Now, the problem with that and seeing wisdom only in Proverbs is that Proverbs, it is for those that things go right for, right? So what happens when something goes wrong in your life? Right? What happens when tragedy befalls you? It doesn't quite answer the, that kind of question. Like, I did everything right, but it didn't work out for me. Have you heard that statement before from people? So... We're going to move to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is kind of your middle-aged dad. We've got Proverbs, the young, wise, you know, female, motherly one telling you what to do. Ecclesiastes moves on. And he's a little cynical. And he's a little crabby. And if you read Ecclesiastes too long, it gets pretty depressing. It pretty much says, life is meaningless, life is meaningless, and then you die. It actually, meaningless transfers, translates to life is a vapor or a smoke, and you can't really grasp it, and you can't really understand it. You can actually really, really go very deep with Ecclesiastes and go deep into this metaphor that life is meaningless, um, but we're not going to do that today. Um, and the reason why you can go deep with it is because we tend to have a fear of our mortality and a fear of death. So if Ecclesiastes is just like, I don't know what your life is about. Sorry about you, you know, with his bark lounger and, you know, smoking a cigarette or whatever. I like Ecclesiastes. He's a nice guy. But he does have kind of a dark view on life that there's not much to it and then you die. He also says it's all vanity. It's all vanity. 
That's the chapter that says that. And vanity, you might think, oh yeah, vanity is bad. I don't have a problem with that. But vanity in this sense is talking about how we're performing for each other. That we just spend our whole life just performing and, and doing stuff that we didn't even think deeply about. Now, check this verse out. Ecclesiastes 9. This is what it says about wisdom directly. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. This is what he says. It seemed great to me, so pay attention. There was a little city with a few people in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. Now there was found in it a poor, wise man. Didn't say he was old or young, just poor and wise. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than might. Yet the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one bungler destroys much good. We all know this. You guys have been in meetings. You've been at work. You've been in situations where the loudest person gets their way or the smartest person or the strongest personality. But Ecclesiastes says it's not even there. It's something different, right? There's no cash value to wisdom, he says. <laughs> There's no deliverable. There's not even an action plan here. There's just, yeah, that guy wisdom, no one's going to pay attention to him. It's almost a warning or a cautionary tale to us, but it doesn't really give us much to go on. Because I told you, Ecclesiastes, he's crabby, he's tired. He's not going to tell you what to do. So we're going to go to Job. Job is a little older, although Job, Job is a young man, and you guys probably know this story. He's an upright man. He's good in every way. He's not crabby like Ecclesiastes, and he's not necessarily going to be very directive. He's just living his life with God. He's got a hot wife and great children who are successful, and he owns lots of money and lots of sheep, 7,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep, yeah? It goes through a whole chapter talking about all this great stuff that Job has in the world. And then God happens to run into Satan, you know, on a walk or something. And he says, hey, look at my man Job. Isn't he an upright dude? He's a pretty guy, a good dude, and he's pretty faithful. Nobody is as good and faithful as Job. And Satan says, yeah, he's that way because you basically babied him. You put a fence around him, and you gave him all this stuff. His hot wife, his successful children, and all his sheep and cows and cattle, and he's super rich. Of course he's going to be faithful to you. Is what Satan says. You basically made him untouchable. Let me at him, Satan says, and I bet he changes his tune and starts cursing you. So that's a loose, a loose translation. <laughs> you get the gist of the story. God allows Satan to take everything that Job has, except he doesn't allow Satan to kill him. He can afflict him with all kinds of nasty ailments, but he can't kill him. And basically, Satan does this 
He afflicts them with everything, takes everything and afflicts them. And he afflicts them so bad and makes them so miserable, takes away his wife, his children, everything he owns. And he says, uh, how do you like me now, basically? <laughs> Job wishes he were, he were dead by the end. He wishes that Satan would kill him because it's so bad. Life is not working out, and it's not just meaningless, although it seems meaningless to Job, but it's traumatic. It's very traumatic. So let me tell you a little bit about trauma. Trauma hijacks your ability to make sense of things. It's psychologically proven, and they, they have studies on the brain that shows your amygdala, that if you're under threat or under trauma, your amygdala chooses to do one or of three things. It freezes, or it flees, or it fights. It goes into survival mode. It is the thing that helps you regulate your response. If you ever thought, why did I respond that way? It's because your amygdala hijacked the rest of your brain. Okay? So, in this situation with Job, he's not able to make sense of it all. He can't find wisdom because he's under the most trauma that he could ever be under. So, I know it's hard to talk about trauma, but we, we need to talk about it as a church because whether you are experiencing personal trauma or not, we are collectively experiencing a sociological kind of trauma right now. And sociological, oh, sociologists, I can say it, sociologists don't have a clue how it's going to end. They're all studying what's happening, what's happening now, okay? So someday historians will say something about it. Someday someone will tell us what's happening, but we don't know what's happening now, and our collective amygdala is hijacked. And I know it's weird to say a collective amygdala, but we share as a body of Christ something that we can't quite see or understand yet of what's happening in the church and what's happening with this story that we are continuing with God. We're in a time and space that we have hyper-connectivity and we actually are ignoring what's happening a little bit more because we feel connected, but we're less connected. So it's very interesting in the culture that people are studying now that we feel like we can talk to whoever we want whenever we want, and we can get wisdom and information anytime we want. But at the same time, people are reporting that we're more lonely and sad, depressed, and anxious. If you know anyone in the education world, they will say, tell you half of their children are struggling with anxiety. So, not to pour more fuel on this trauma fire, but, you know, it's me. So, and we're in Job, so let's talk about this more. I don't know one single person in my life